0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith Friday, November 18th, 2011 Alright, you remember last Friday We played uh, Albert Muller's lecture On the devil or Satan can't sing Yeah, he, he, this is The devil can't stand hymns, but yeah, I'm beginning to think he can chant. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things out there. Being said, and just kind of as a biblical anchor and a note here, it's not the person pointing out that what somebody is teaching is contrary to scripture that's the one who's causing division. What I mean is is that the one who has the discernment to say, uh, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches, that's the person who's trying to create unity around sound doctrine many times the person who is pointing out the false doctrine is the one who's being accused of divisiveness or, or is a divisiveness yeah either way <laughs> however you want to pronounce it divisive or divisive uh, it doesn't matter what matters is is that the person it employing the biblical gift of discernment or you know the, of saying wait a second that's not what the scripture says. That person's teaching false doctrine. Uh, the, the, many times they're you know they're shot as if they're the ones who are the wolves. They'll, they're not the ones who are the wolves. The person pointing out the false doctrine is doing what the scriptures tell them to do. Uh, the person teaching the false doctrine is the one who is divisive. They're the ones creating disunity and disharmony in the body of Christ by teaching their own dream doctrines by teaching you know, teaching doctrines that are not in accord with sound biblical doctrine uh sound biblical hermeneutics and things of the na- of that nature now here's the deal we live in a time and in a place where in western culture okay um the state doesn't get involved in religious uh affairs and so and and I think this is a good thing and so what you know, so the state is not going to step in and say, hey, XYZ teachers are guilty of teaching heresy and then put them in prison for teaching heresy. That's not going to happen. And uh, And so it's up to Christians in the Christian church to do their biblical duty to teach what's in accord with sound biblical doctrine and refute and rebuke those who contradict it. Um and so uh, you know we're not we can't depend upon the state to police uh Christian doctrine um you know, which is kind of funny because you know you got all these people out there running around talking about how the United States is a Christian nation um yeah I by what definition are you saying that they're a Christian nation I mean I don't see Jesus as king uh, so, but he, so here's the deal: in the church, it, it is part and parcel of the job of the church. In fact, God, the Holy Spirit, gives the gift of discernment. That's one of the gifts given by God, the Holy Spirit, for the building up, protecting, and defending of uh, the body of Christ against false teachers, ravenous wolves, false Christ, false prophets, and uh, and what's happened is is that. Uh, the, with the rise of post-modernity and political correctness, um, the, the church has, hasn't has really been doing its duty and instead has kind of taken the Rodney King approach to, uh, to church unity, basically saying, can't we all just get along? Um, no, we can't get along with false doctrine. False doctrine sends people to hell. And uh, because we love our neighbors, we can't sit by sit on our hands say nothing and just go mum's the word when it comes to people who are teaching false doctrine and leading people astray you have to say something and if you have the authority to put a false teacher out of the church to discipline them and put them out of the body of Christ then that's what needs to be pursued um you don't you don't <laughs> There's just no way to get along with a wolf. When it comes to uh theological wolves, there's no way to domesticate them. You know, it, i was you know, this is you know this is a weird metaphor here, but um was watching a, a, a television show with my wife uh you know, not too long ago we were uh in bed in you know watching television on my laptop and um and there was a program on that had something to do with the supernatural. You know, it's like, okay. So we watched it. Okay. And apparently the story went that there, there's these guys who are hunters. They call themselves hunters, whatever that means. And they hunt supernatural bad things. And uh, and uh, in this particular case, they were hunting vampires. But these vampires had changed their ways. Yes, yes these vampires no longer killed human beings and drank their blood and all that kind of stuff they had found the way to adapt so that they can live at live in peace with the humans in and around their community of vampires and so these were reformed vampires and so they they, they still had to drink blood but they found a way to to adapt in such a way that they only drank the blood of cows rather than human beings. And so, you know, killing a cow, I mean, that's not murder. I mean, we do it all the time. So rather than eating steak, they drank cow blood. And and so they were reformed vampires. And and so the reason I bring all this up is because I know it just sounds silly, doesn't it? You know, you know reformed vampires. So um, I, anyway that's it the idea of reformed wolves is just as silly it's absolutely ludicrous okay a wolf is a wolf and you know what wolves do by nature they do wolfy things and theological doctrinal wolves have no desire whatsoever to teach sound biblical doctrine. You're not going to be taught Christianity by a wolf. Instead, what wolves do is they tear apart sheep. Okay? So that being the case, if there's somebody who's a wolf and they're teaching false doctrine, they're teaching heresy, and they're being divisive or divisive, however you want to pronounce it, tomato, tomato, you know, whatever. But the point is, is if that's what they're doing, yeah, they're going to be the first ones to say, oh, you're being divisive. You're breaking up the body of Christ. Oh, terrible. How dare you do that? Can't we all just get along? Answer, no, we can't. We'll get along as soon as you put that false doctrine away and publicly repent. You see, that's the thing. Public teachers who publicly teach heresy, they don't get to privately amend their ways. When they repent, their repentance has to be public. And unless it is, they're not to be trusted. They're not to be believed. They're not to be left alone with God's sheep because they'll go back to doing what wolves do, ravage and kill God's sheep. Something to keep in mind. And all of this imagery, by the way, is biblical. These are not my ideas. These ideas about wolves you know, in sheep's clothing, about ravenous wolves tearing apart the body of Christ, all have their origin in Scripture. In fact, Jesus Christ himself was the one who taught about Satan masquerading as an angel of light or being a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus himself warned us about those who teach false doctrine, those who are false prophets, who are false messiahs. Then he even warned us that some of those false prophets and false messiahs would be able to perform miracles. Just because miracles happen doesn't mean that the source of the miracle is God. It instead could be a lying miracle, a miracle designed to prop up a lie. You always have to look at the theology that's associated with the miracle. so one of the things we do on this program is is that you know we test what people are saying, we hold their doctrine and their teaching and the things that they say in public up to scrutiny and measure it against the canon against the only norm and rule when it comes to what is true and not true regarding God, and that's His Word. If it doesn't square with Scripture, instead, if it's off by a few degrees or doesn't seem to fit at all, it's to be rejected as false teaching. And the person teaching the false teaching is to be rejected, rebuked, shunned, put out of the Christian church as a false teacher until they repent and begin teaching the the sound historic orthodox Christian faith. See the problem is is that much of the Christian church has lost its backbone. It's not politically correct to do that, to say that somebody's teaching a false doctrine and then who are we to say that, you know, so and so can't teach that? I mean it's a free country. Yeah, see, and that's the problem. See, here's the deal. Yes, it's a free country, but God's church is not the United States of America. Nobody in the body of Christ has the right to teach things that are contrary to God's word. There in, God, in the church, you know the, the, God, Christ is king. It's not a, it's not a democracy. In fact, he, this is one of the things that's really tough. For Americans is this idea that, um, you know, well, cause Americans, oh, I mean, they're rugged individualists. They're rugged individuals. Yeah, we're into rugged individualism out here in the United States of America. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm the king of myself. I ain't got no king and the president, I voted for him or her or whatever. And uh, if I don't like him, I can get rid of him in four years. He, he, I am, I am master of my own domain. Yeah, it's rugged individualism. So the idea here is is that in the United States of America, well, you know, individuals have worth. And yes, they do have worth. But see, here's the deal. The church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy with Christ as king. And the faith was once for all delivered to the saints Thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, long, 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 long before you walked the earth, before you were born, before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, before your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were born. And uh, as a result of it, the faith was once for all delivered to the saints, and you didn't get a vote. Yeah, doctrine, sound biblical doctrine, isn't decided via consensus. It isn't decided via compromise. It isn't decided via getting together a few people and having a vote about it. Sound biblical doctrine actually is decided by God and God alone in his word. It is the job of the church to figure out what God meant in his word. And when people are contradicting what God the Holy Spirit intended to communicate about himself in his word, where he reveals things about himself, when people are contradicting that, they are to be rebuked and silenced. They have a right to believe it, sure. They have a right to teach it in the United States, but not in the church if they want to teach the fantasy doctrines of their own dreams and the concocted visions of their own mind, then they can go through all the trouble of making their own religion. They have the freedom to do that. But see, here's the deal. When the Christian church doesn't do what it's supposed to do and discipline false teachers, then what ends up happening is these false teachers eat away at biblical Christianity and the body of Christ like a cancerous malignant tumor. And it's not loving at all on any level to allow that malignant tumor to continue to kill and destroy. You've got to cut it out. And that's what God's word tells us to do. So fighting for the faith, uh, think of it this way. This is chemotherapy. And many in many times it's like not wanted. It's, this is uh, an unelected surgery, if you would. This is an unelected treatment. Uh, people are not asking for this, but we're giving it to them anyway because this is what the body of Christ needs. It's time for Jesus' people. It's time for the sheep of Jesus Christ to wake up to the reality that we are in a war. We are not... At peace, this side of Christ's return here on this planet. We are behind enemy lines. And we have a gospel to proclaim, and when you give your pulpit over to somebody who is a heretic, they will spend their entire life adult project working on destroying the Christian faith rather than advancing it and teaching it and proclaiming it. And when somebody shows that that's what they're up to and that's their project, they need to be removed from the pulpit, and if that can't happen, then people, they need to be surrounded Uh, By people saying that's not what the Bible teaches and they need to be challenged, rebuked and hounded and have stones thrown at them, not literal ones. But, you know, continue to throw stones at the wolf so that they retreat and people don't listen to them. Why? Because if people listen to them, they go to hell. So you love your neighbor enough to do the thing that they don't even realize needs to be done in their life. They need to be protected from the wolves that are destroying them and ravaging them. And that's kind of what this program is really all about. And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. But anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. You know, Oh, man. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. At the opening of the program... Um, uh, I mentioned the fact that, um, that, uh, well, last week we had Dr. Albert Muller's fantastic Reformation Day lecture, uh, regarding, um, the fact that Satan cannot sing. Now I'm, one week later, we're going to reopen the music, uh, question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you um what i would consider the most the most dangerous 711 song i've ever heard in my life now i first heard this song on todd freels uh, t- uh television program uh, todd Friel, he, uh, he he wretched radio and uh and he does you know wretched tv and he's got a youtube channel and uh, i was perusing his youtube channel and and ran across uh him <laughs> talking about not being hypnotized and I thought well, that's interesting and I took a listen to what he was uh trying to preview there and and I I wanted to play it and so I want to make sure that uh, Todd Friel gets the credit for you know because this is where I first heard it but uh I I want to take a crack at it because his point was you listen to this stuff and it's gonna it's gonna hypnotize you you got I'd be hypnotized but um that yes that's kind of the idea here but It's dangerous on some other levels, too, and I want to talk about that. So we're going to be listening to um, Misty Edwards, uh, who is like one of the major uh, praise and worship leaders in the IHOP movement. And when when you hear the word IHOP, you think International House of Pancakes. Well, IHOP is the International House of Prayer. This is Mike Bickle's organization. And this group has many of the classic, classic uh, signs and symptoms that this is a cult it's, it's something different than biblical christianity going on out there uh i think it's in Kansas City but um there at the international house of prayer and uh, so we're going to be playing uh, this misty edwards thing um and I, I want you to hear it and you know and uh, of course i'll comment accordingly um i've got a kind of a tongue in cheek uh article i want to read from a blog um from a gentleman who considers himself to be uh, not so young, uh, restless and reformed, uh, reformed and uh, he's introducing what he calls ESV onlyism. Yeah, English Standard Version ESV onlyism. And so I, I he posted a link to this on my uh, Facebook wall today. So I want to take a look at that. Um, I've got. I w- want to get back to part two of uh, that TD Jakes uh, uh, kind of commentary that Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs uh, has been doing over at the Pyromaniacs blog um i may or may not get to this other thing so i'm i'm not going to even mention it and then in uh in hour number 2 we're going to be reviewing a sermon sermon yeah it just <clears throat> it, it you know it just bugs me to even call it that but those of you familiar with hillsong united out there in sydney australia well uh, they've got a gal from uh hillsong her name is christine kane and she's kind of like their um uh, ambassador if you would and she's been making the rounds over this past year i've been watching her uh you know pop up in my podcast feed you know it basically hitting pretty much all of the major seeker driven churches and um she uh, recently uh preached at a sunday morning at mariner's church in irvine california and the name of her sermon um is risky living risky living um it sounds like that old movie, uh, Risky Business. Anyway, so we're going to be reviewing Christine Kane's uh, sermon on risky living and um, see how well she handles the Bible, if she handles it at all. Um, I and this, and this is another one of those uh, sermons where I purposely didn't listen to the whole thing, so I don't know exactly where it's going to end, but I can tell you what I heard it makes me go, what? Anyway, so uh, with all of that, we're going to dive into the program proper, uh, take all the proper precautions. Uh, bendy straws, padding, duct tape, uh, tinfoil, pyramid hats, things like that. Uh, you're going to need to probably be protected from whatever is going to be unleashed by this uh, uh, Misty Edwards song. But I need to play it for you. So, um, what I want, I, I'll go ahead and and begin to play the song for you, and we'll start to critique it because this isn't Christian worship. This is something completely different, but it's going to take a few minutes for you to unfold. Um, I (laughs) recommend uh, multitasking while listening to this music. Why? I don't want you to fall into a trance. Um, But uh, with that, here's Misty Edwards and I think her song entitled Heartbeat. Here we go.
1: Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven, 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 listen to the rhythm.
0: Okay, now <clears throat> I'm gonna pause right there. We're at the three minute mark straight up. Now, what you can't see is what I'm looking at while playing this music. This is your standard dark rock and roll concert hall with the spotlights you know and the spinners and and you know and the mood is being carefully orchestrated here. And have you heard anything, anything whatsoever about God? Have you heard anything regarding Jesus Christ and what he's done? Now remember, Albert Muller pointed out the fact that uh, in, in the past people have defined hymns as confessions of faith put to music. W- what is this song confessing? Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. I want to hear your heartbeat. I want to hear your heartbeat. You know, this sounds a lot more like um the kind of jungle music, you know, the 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 stereotypical, you know, backwoods jungle folk, you know, who you know, you know you see in photographs on National Geographic and the, and they've got around the fire, you know, they got the guys banging on the drums and people spinning around and you know losing their mind kind of stuff, right? This isn't Christian worship. This really is a form of mantra meditation designed to put you into an altered state of consciousness. And in that altered state of consciousness, you're supposed to have some kind of an experience, if you would, of of the heavenly, of the divine, of, of the supernatural. And I, I would argue that while you're in that Altered state of consciousness. I mean this is what mystics do, is it not? How is this any different than centering prayer? This is just centering prayer put to music, if you would. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven, this and see here's the deal. You got all these kids there at this event sitting there with their eyes closed and their hands raised and their bodies moving to the music, and it looks like their brains have been basically beaten into jello and mush, all thinking and critical discernment and biblical discernment out the window. We're having an experience.
1: Heaven, listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of 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 heaven, and I won't hear and
0: I will not I am a I mean it's like they're cr- literally trying to create mind-numbed robots. Now, On this uh, video, this this is a video in two parts, okay? I'm going to fast forward to part number two of this exact same video. And Mike Bickle, after Misty Edwards has gotten everybody whipped up into some kind of trans-like frenzy where they believe they're having an experience of God. It's all carefully orchestrated and manipulated. This is a trance. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm. Mike Bickle gets up and begins to prophesy. Here's the continuation of this.
2: For I'm raising up singers and musicians all over the nations, even as I raised up my servant David in the days of old.
0: Now he's speaking, uh, thus saith the Lord, prophet style.
2: And my spirit will come.
0: So once you get them into a trance, you can speak as if you're God, and they're going to feel like what they're hearing is directly from God. Notice the talk, I will, I will, I will. Apparently, Mike Bickle here is channeling God, the Holy Spirit. I will release the new
2: song of my heart through them, and I will shift.
0: So you are those I will release my power through. Apparently God the Holy Spirit's uh, about ready to unleash an army on the world, apparently. They hear nothing about Jesus, hmm, or anything he's done, hmm. Mm, You know, I'm willing to uh, bet, well, everything I have. Willing to bet everything I have, that ain't God the Holy Spirit that he's uh, channeling there. He's channeling a spirit, all right, but it ain't God the Holy Spirit. Nope. I mean it's absolutely frightening looking at the uh, the audience shots here. I mean these kids look like they are gone, like they're wasted. So and that's Mike Bickle shouting. The dream again
1: We wanna hear your heartbeat We wanna hear your heart
0: You know I I keep looking for the Golden Calf. I, I thought I spotted it a couple of times as they were panning through the audience.
2: Of singers and musicians, will hear I will give my
1: songs and Listen sounds to them. Today I am calling you. Of heaven. Today Listen I am separating to you to a new way.
0: Yeah, it, it, I think this is hypnotic on purpose. This is not being used by God the Holy Spirit at all. This song is doing the work of the other team.
1: Listen to the rhythm
3: Today I'm commissioning singers and I musicians. Had a
1: dream, an end of musicians And in the dream I was standing in this church and everything was stoic and mechanic and plastic And I started hearing this rhythm and my adrenaline was moving I said I gotta get out of here I gotta find something real.
0: Yeah, I am with you there, yeah.
1: And I began running to the rhythm of the speed. I was running to the rhythm of the speed. I was running to the rhythm of the speed. Listen, my beloved. Oh. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. Listen I am commissioning the rhythm, the rhythm. I am giving you Always a silence. Run into the rhythm of this beat.
0: Okay, done. Okay. Now I stretched that out a little bit longer than I wanted to, but I did it so that you can get. What's going on here? There is a pattern to this type of deception. And the pattern goes, you play the mantra song. Listen to the rhythm. And you get people's brains to turn off. They literally become disconnected from their own minds. And once that happens and they're in a trance-like state, then you can prophesy. And speak as if you're God himself, and they will feel like they are hearing the very word of God spoken by his prophet. I hate to say this. This is exactly, and I mean exactly, the same kind of technique used by Hitler. Do the research. What Hitler was a master of was these outdoor, at-night spectacles to help people feel like they were part of a community. And what did that mean? That they could experience the community. Torchlight parades, torchlight events in huge stadiums. And it was all designed to get you to turn your mind off. So that you would listen to the voice of somebody who you probably would not listen to if you had stayed in your right mind. This is not Christian worship. This literally, literally, literally is the music of hell. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. At my email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pyrechristian. Christian. We'll be right back.
2: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be
3: taking your false doctrine now.
0: of Monty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell
2: you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit... And we saw 12 people healed the Word of Knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can
3: you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You can- put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in You take your right hand out You put it in And you shake it And you shake it all about You put your left hand in You take your left hand out You put your left hand in You take your left hand out You put your left hand in You take your left hand out put it in And you shake it And you shake it all about You put your right foot in Take your right foot out You put your right foot in You take your right foot out You put your right foot in You take your right foot out Put it in Can you shake it? How you shake it all out?
2: pokey at first with the arms uh, nothing nothing real effect but then as soon as i just started we started doing the whole we'll put your left foot in your right foot in both of my knees you know one at a time i could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain i said you said start checking yourself while i just squat that's awesome thank you lord for new knees in yes. jesus name come on
3: come on um, I've had back problems most of my life and a couple of we- about a week ago my back had gone out and it was somewhat better but it was still sore uh, up until today and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified all the pain yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's do it Ooh, shame it shame it, shame it all about you put your whole head in, you take your whole head Push your whole head in, take your whole head out, you push your whole head in, take your whole head out, put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, and you shake it, shake it all about. It, you shake it, and you shake it, and you shake it, and you, kh- you shake it, and you shake it, and you shake it.
0: your money in your pocket hi Chris Roseboro here if you're planning to travel anytime in the near future then don't pay more for airfare hotel rooms or rental cars than you need to Longtime pirate Christian radio featured advertiser cheapo air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs plus cheapo air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional ten dollars off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, 7-Eleven praise songs are all about creating a mystical experience by putting you into a trance. That's not Christian worship. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important discernment radio outreach to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you 're doing is signing up to automatically contribute six dollars ninety five cents every month to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith and pirate christian radio and as we get closer to december we 'll be announcing our basically our Christmas thank you gift uh, to our crew members and uh, you know, and which will be a, a, a very nice ebook uh, that we 've been working on for many months here but um, so i 'll be announcing that as we get closer to uh, december but if you 're not already a, a crew member. We truly could use your help financially, and, uh, and it's a great way to support this, uh, this radio program. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do that a number of ways, uh, uh, two in particular. Click on the Donate button on our website, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from uh, the Charisma News website, CharismaNews dot com. Headline reads: Crystal Cathedral still expects miracle despite bankruptcy ruling. Now, I've been waiting for you know the final news on this, and it kind of came last night a little bit, but some of the, more of the details emerged today. And what it turns out is that the Roman Catholic Church has uh, won their bid for the Crystal Cathedral to the tune of fifty seven point five million bucks to. Uh, to basically satisfy the creditors of the Crystal Cathedral and to uh, you know end their bankruptcy. But uh, that would mean that the Roman Catholic Church would turn the Crystal Cathedral into a Roman Catholic cathedral. But let me read the news story. This is by Jennifer LeClaire of uh, com. The Crystal Cathedral bankruptcy court drama has finally come to an end. But the megachurch's board and membership are still believing and praying for deliverance. On Thursday, Orange County bankruptcy judge Robert Kwan ruled that the Crystal Cathedral would be sold to the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange for $57.5 million to satisfy creditors. The diocese will transform the Protestant sanctuary into a Catholic cathedral. Despite the ruling, Crystal Cathedral founder Robert H. Schuler and his family Refuse to stop believing God for a miracle that would allow them to retain ownership of the Garden Grove, California campus. Escrow takes time to close. Nothing is final until escrow closes, says Sheila Schuler Coleman, Schuler's daughter and a senior pastor at the Crystal Cathedral. Although this decision breaks my heart, I still believe there is plenty of time for God to do His miracle. It is His church. It is His fight. We know who wins. So the Roman Catholic Diocese will allow Crystal Cathedral Ministries the full and exclusive use of the church building and most of the rest of the campus for three years. One exception is the Family Life Center, which houses the programs for children and youth. The church will have to move out of that space within 18 months. If the Schulers don't get the miracle they are expecting, the membership will be forced to find a new home. Quote, if it's God's will for us to move, we believe it will be where he needs us the most. It does not mean that our ministry will be diminished. Crystal Cathedral Church, it's not a building, Coleman says. A church is comprised of people who are dedicated to practicing through words and works. God's love, uh, God's love you, God loves you, and so do we. So there you go, there they're they're at least they're being um, consistent with their power of positive thinking they're thinking positively that somehow before escrow closes all by themselves they're going to be able to come up with the 57.5 million necessary to bail themselves out and to keep the Roman Catholic Church from taking control of the Crystal Cathedral of course we will Watch that story carefully. Now, from the uh, blog t- uh, which which can be found at repeater75.com, repeater75.com. Uh, the name of the blog is the Not So Young, Restless, and Reform. But I, I read a, a a headline here from the uh, the gentleman who runs the blog. And the name of the uh, the blog post is Introducing ESV-only-ism. Yeah, you thought KJV-only-ism is the only uh, you know, well, translation-ism out there. Well, no, it's a new one. Here we go. The ESV is the word of God in English. What began with Tyndale reached its culmination with the ESV 500 years later. We of the ESV Onlyist movement believe that God has preserved his perfect word in English in the ESV. All other English translations are either counterfeits or, or old stepping stones that ultimately lead to the perfect word in English. We are committed to one Uh, (laughs) "...arguing backwards from the ESV to prove our point. Since the ESV is perfect, arguments against any of its readings are automatically wrong. Whatever arguments work to defend, a reading in the ESV is fine, even if one argument contradicts the logic used in arguments for other readings. Such argumentation is not really contradictory because, after all, these readings are all found in God's preserved word in English." Two, we are committed to uh, camping out in Christian bookstores to accost people shopping for any other Bible than the ESV. Number three, we are uh, committed to infiltrating churches that don't use the ESV and splitting them over the issue. In this manner, we are starting faithful ESV-only churches in the United States and in the world. Number four, we are committed to translating the ESV into foreign languages. So... (laughs) So, people of other <laughs> tongues can have the pure Word of God we are commit number five we are committed to informing the world that whatever is preached from any translation other than the e s v is destructive to the souls of men. Number six, we are committed to dogmatically criticizing the traditional Greek text uh though we honestly have no idea what uh the real arguments for the support of it. Such arguments matter not because. The traditional Greek text is wrong, wrong, wrong. Number number seven, we are committed to insisting that all who oppose us are liberals, who deny that God has preserved his word. And last but not least, we are committed to the obnoxious overuse of bold text in all of our writing. So anyway, uh, great stuff there uh, for... <laughs> The ESV-only-ism crowd. We'll have to watch that uh, that movement to see if they are able to gain any followers or convert anybody from the KJV-only crowd over, over, to, over to the ESV-only-ism. Um, as for me, I will continue to use the ESV. I think it's a fine translation, but I still work in the original languages. And at time from time to time, I do find myself even correcting the ESV. By the way, that was satire. just want to let you all know in case you hadn't figured that out. Okay, uh, last but not least in this hour... Uh, I want to read part two of uh, Dan Phillips's uh, fine commentary that he's uh, given to us on the Pyromaniacs blog regarding the T.D. Jakes, is he a Trinitarian or not debacle, or what do he call it yesterday, or kerfuffle. Yeah, see, I've been t- – I'm so glad I got to use that word today because yesterday I, you know, I was just marveling at the word ker- kerfuffle, and I was really hoping for an opportunity to use that word in a sentence, and, well, I just did. Oh, man, I just oh. – The whole kerfuffle kerfuffle is just wonderful. Anyway, um, so uh, (laughs) Dan Phillips, the name of this uh, blog post, by the way, is T.D. Jakes and the like, part two, thinking clearly about repentance. And Dan Phillips makes some great, great points that need to be heard. Um, Dan Phillips writes, he says, in part one, which I assume you've read. Yes, I have, Dan. Thank you. He says, I I made, uh, I, I made. bold to assert that there were two issues relating to the elephant room uh, and the TD Jakes kerfuffle and see there again he's using that word uh which a i think are crucial b haven't gotten the attention that we need to pay to them interestingly two vertical church posts uh posts to which i had linked in the first post have since gone the way of an unwelcome frank turk comment <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh, okay, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I've, I'm sure Frank took that in stride. Anyway, he says, what <laughs> wonder what might have happened after today's focus on the second of my two issues. So let's proceed as I did in the previous post. Let's, let us hope and pray, and to be clear, I truly do hope and pray that Jake's comes to repentance on this foundational issue of the nature of God. What would that repentance mean, though? And what would that look like biblically now remember luther yeah i've I've heard of luther it says remember luther well began his top 95 things worth arguing about list with that would be the 95 thesis with this one when our lord and master jesus christ said repent he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance repent is a bible word a jesus word but what is repentance it isn't a small topic. I work it out of. I work it out on page fifteen of his uh, The World Tilting Gospel Book. That's a, that uh, Dan Phillips's new book, and it takes some doing to understand. Many feelings or activities or attitudes mimic repentance, but fall short of it. Feeling bad is not necessarily repentance. Feeling humiliated or feeling bad about getting caught is not necessarily repentance. What categorizes genuine repentance? Then, well, the two most common Hebrew word uh, words mean a to regret or b to turn around, return to or turn back. The most frequent Greek word means a mental paradigm shift. If we learn of repentance, then from the Hebrew word shub, uh, to in, repent involves turning around. You were heading in one direction; now you are heading in the in its opposite direction. You confess the rightness of God's judgment, see Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 6. You turn from wicked ways, see Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 7. And in the same act, turn to God, see Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 21. Or to take it from the Greek word metanoia, repentance involves looking at things quite differently. You are operating on a new paradigm. Formerly, your calculations rested on the axiom 2 plus 2 equals... (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it, it's not even a number. It's a sign. It, it's uh, uh, 2 plus 2 equals cloverleaf. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what it is. I'm, I'm looking at the blog post, and he says, you, Formerly your calculations rested on the axiom that 2 plus 2 equals cloverleaf. Now you're starting all over and recalculating from 2 plus 2 equals 4. You were thinking and living as if God's coming kingdom was an irrelevant nothing. And then you begin thinking and living as if it were an impending certainty. But we mustn't confine ourselves to synonyms for repentance per se. Repentance involves dealing with sin and its fruits. What other language does the Bible use? Of course, one big word is mortify. It means to put to death or in the vernacular, kill it dead. You don't want to leave it pining for the fjords and (laughs) <laughs> you want it cold, stiff, out of the game. The opposite is presented in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. I discussed all this at length in another post to which I now direct you, and you can find the link there, so that I may come directly to the point of this one. So here are the facts of this situation to the very best of my knowledge. That would be Dan Phillips' knowledge. Num- uh, number one, Jake's has an admitted past and a long history of identification with Modalism. 2. James MacDonald, and only James MacDonald to my knowledge, is now saying Jakes is a Trinitarian. The Bible reveals God as triune, therefore modalism is a heresy. Heresy is sin. If Jakes was a modalist and is a Trinitarian, then he has changed from what is sinful to what is true and pleasing to God, if only in this one specific. Next, the biblical noun that describes such a change is therefore called repentance. All of that is to say that this, if T.D. Jakes is a Trinitarian today, then to get there, he must have repented of the sin of modalism. That is the foundation for what follows. And let me say once again, with crystal clarity, we all hope T.D. Jakes is, has indeed repented of the heresy he's at least represented and allowed himself to be identified with and has embraced the God and gospel of Scripture. That would be wonderful. We would welcome that with joy. But hoping for the best does not require turning off our brains or our memories. So, if Jakes has repented of the sin of modalism, and given the biblical definition and description above of repentance, we have the right, and in my opinion, James MacDonald has the responsibility to ask some questions among them. Number one, one, when was it that Jakes repented of the sin of modalism? Two, what led Jakes to repent of the sin of modalism? Three, Where are the public confessions of Jakes' repentance of this sin? For if Jakes has come to see that modalism is a sin and that his allowing himself to be identified with that heresy is a sin, how is it that nobody knew of this change of heart except for James MacDonald? King Josiah had the word of God around and did nothing about it but when he really heard it see 2nd kings chapter 22 he took immediate and public action tearing down altars and destroying idols and putting idolatrous priests out of business see 2nd kings chapter 23 what altars has jake has jakes torn down what idols has jakes destroyed what false teachers has jakes opposed and why is the public completely ignorant of it or to be specific how can jakes explain waiting months years to make this revelation and then only in a paid venue What does Jakes think of the people who believed his teaching, accepted modalism because of it, and died holding to that false god as he waited publicly to unveil his change of heart? What restitution has Jakes made, and what has Jakes done to correct all the people who either were indoctrinated in or made indifferent to the heresy of modalism through his teaching? What discipline did Jakes accept, and what did he do when Jakes realized that he'd been teaching or tolerating a heresy with his very public profile for many years? Jakes previously specifically refused to disassociate himself From advocates and purveyors of the modalist heresy, has Jakes now disassociated himself from them? Where did he say this or do this? Name some individuals and groups so that people can be warned from them. That last especially shouldn't be difficult. I'm not just blowing smoke on that either. Look, you all know that I too was in a cult. I explained that at some length. This is what uh, Dan Phillips explains. He says, "I also explained how the Lord saved me out of that cult." Now, wouldn't it have been weird if I had been known if it had been known that I was associated with that cult? But for the last 38 plus years, I never once said that what they taught was flat out error that anyone who believed it was lost and that had no hope of eternal life. Wouldn't it be odd if I refused to disassociate myself from some of the advocates of religious science? Nothing to do with hate, although it has everything to do with judging the false teaching. You could ask me if I have fond memories of the people, and I'd say, surely I do. Do I care for them? Yes. Uh, were they were they kind and patient with me? Well, very much so. Have I parted ways with them? Absolutely, because what they believe and teach is a lie, and is contrary to the word of God, and will keep any adherent under the wrath of God without hope of pardon or life. See, it isn't that hard. Even a fumble-tongued pinhead like me can do it. So will James MacDonald ask T.D. Jakes those questions on that big, bright, international platform that he's giving him? Shouldn't he? Shouldn't someone? Hey, Like our T4G2008 t-shirt said, someone has to say these things. Yep. Great post, great point, great questions. And as we get closer to the elephant room, I just might want to revisit these uh, so that we can begin to apply some good brotherly pressure on James McDonald so that he'll do the right thing at the elephant room. Because if T.D. Jakes has repented, then where is all the public evidence that he has? That's the question that needs to be asked. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why yes, I am. Can I interest you in some Rah! Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low Prices. Visit Pirate Christian com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's Pirate Christian com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two, sermon review time. Alright, here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an Equal Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon, man, I hate calling it that, um, comes to us via Mariners Church in Irvine, California. That's a big, secret driven megachurch out there. I've been there. The name of the... It's hard for me to say the word. The name of the sermon is entitled Risky Living, and it's from Christine Kane from Hillsong in Sydney, Australia. Yeah, that's right. Christine is a she... Yeah, she shouldn't be a Pastrix, but she's a she's kind of a Pastrix uh, uh, at large for Hillsong, and she makes frequent trips to the United States of America to secret-driven megachurches and preaches there. In fact, earlier in the year, she preached over at um, Elevation Church. That's um, Stephen Furtick's outfit out there in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've seen her at... Uh, Willow Creek, seen her at Craig Rochelle's church. So yeah, I mean she's kind of a staple for the uh, seeker-driven guys. Again, the name of the <clears throat> man—I'm having a hard time saying that. <clears throat> I feel like I got a hairball <clears throat> sermon. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it is risky living. I have to go floss after this. Anyway, all right, let me kill the music. So, without any further ado, here is Christine Kane and. Uh, Risky Living, yeah, because that's, I have no idea what it has to do with the Bible, but, you know, that's the name of the sermon. Here we go. As she (laughs) does that.
4: Good morning, church. How y'all doing? I I don't know if that's a a, a great introduction. You're all like, who is this woman? She's going to do what to me? But anyway, as you can tell, um, I'm not.
0: That's a great question. Who is this woman? Why is she uh, preaching? Uh, The scriptures don't allow for that
4: from Orange County or North America, if you're wondering, I'm a little bit further south than y'all, and um, if you kind of keep flying about 20 hours, I'm, I'm come from Sydney, Australia. So anyone been to Sydney? Wow, quite a lot. Of, anyone want to come to Sydney? Whole church. Hi,. <laughs> we can I'm part of the teaching team um, of a church in Sydney, Australia called H- Hillsong Church. I don't know has anyone heard of Hillsong.:
0: Yep, it's a heretical uh, word faith prosperity heresy uh, church. Yeah, so I'm familiar with uh, Hillsong, yeah
4: blonde hair, and I'm from Hillsong, and you think I'm going to break out into Shout to the Lord, but you would all cry to the Lord this Sunday morning, so it's not going to happen. But um, I'm very privileged. I love your church, and I, I love and very am very honored to be here this morning. I'm here with the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth, which would be my husband. So, honey, can you stand up? This is my husband, Nick, everyone. And um, you know, when Pastor Kenton and Laurie asked me to come, I was, I was... I was Uh, just considered it a great honor and privilege to share a little bit of my story with you and to
0: to share a little bit of what (laughs) yeah okay um let's explain what the problem is at the moment here um here's the problem um aside from the obvious that women aren't supposed to be pastors Um, let's pretend that you could be a pastor, even though you can't, because the Bible says you can't, but let's pretend, okay, in the world of make-believe. So we're in the land of unicorns and, uh, and monster bunnies and things like that. We're in the land of make-believe and, uh, where, well, women pastors also exist. But if there was such a thing as a woman pastor, then her job wouldn't be any different than a, well, a male pastor. And that would mean that her job would be to Preach the word in season and out of season. And since Jesus himself makes it clear that the Bible is about him, that would include the Old Testament, the Bible's about Jesus, well, then it would be the responsibility of, well, a pretend female pastrix to, well, preach the word and tell us about Jesus. Now, you've kind of started off like on the wrong foot on two accounts here. The first we've discussed, uh, the fact that you're a female. The second is is that you're now going to preach about yourself. Well, that's an odd thing to do in a Christian church, don't you think? I guess this is just the Twilight Zone sermon, if you would. It's a great honor and privilege to
4: share a little bit of my story
0: with... Your story, yeah. You're not supposed to do that, Lady
4: with you and to continue on in the series that um, Pastor Kenton's already started about living boldly and um, you know I'm, I'm from Australia so our seasons are a little bit back to front and I love this whole time we, we kind of don't have um, Halloween or harvest festivals in Australia so it's quite a novelty to see all the pumpkins here we, um, we have pumpkin soup you do pumpkin pie it's a little bit unusual but that's okay I'm from the, the place where we speak the Queen's English like we speak very dignified we say awesome And um, so after three, I just want you to say it like an Australian, awesome. One, two, three. Wow. Okay, just, I'm going to do that again. It sounds very British. One, two, three. Beautiful. Now after three, I want you to say it like an American. Ready? One, two, three. Just saying. Okay, so uh, there's just this thing about awesome versus awesome. Anyway, and... uh, just joking on a Sunday morning, can you laugh in church? And anyway, so we're coming into this winter season, which my girls are really happy about because last February, we kind of took up skiing and where I'm from you don't really see snow very much but we went to Vail in Colorado to ski with five other American families it was right during the Vancouver Winter Olympics and so my girls were all excited and I would watch the Olympics at night and then I'd get so motivated in the day that I would get off the chairlift and think I'm representing Australia because there was all these Americans there and I'm like I'm going to represent Australia even though I didn't know how to ski and in my church we have this kind of thing called the pump factor which means you can surround yourself with people that will pump you up to do things that you are unable to do and have zero ability to do but with the right motivation you will try to you know high dive off off, off some big ski slopes so
0: I'm- now i i heard some of you i know that you heard her say the words pump you up and you immediately thought of that saturday night live sketch you know with we are going to bump you up. Yeah, I'm not going to play that. So I heard some of you thinking, oh, he's got it. No, I'm not going to. Just saying. Just saying. I, I heard you, though.
4: I to, you know, high dive off, off, off some big ski slope. So I was with Nick, and I was doing my best and um, I felt really excited that I had done this really, really good run. And I turned around to my husband. And I said, babe, if you were with the boys right now, you wouldn't be skiing any quicker, would you? And, um, you know, if you're a man in this room this morning and you're married and you want to stay married or you're single and you want to one day get married and stay married, if your wife ever asks you a loaded question, like, would you be doing anything better with anybody else? Um, The the right answer in that moment would always be to say, you know, no, babe. The pinnacle of my ski experience is on this green flat slope with you. That is the highlight of my life. Like, if you were wanting any action that night, that's what you'd say. But anyway, so (laughs) I knew the 9 o'clocks would be awake. Anyway, and then so I... um, My husband goes, no, babe, you know what? If I was with the guys, I'd be skiing quicker. Now, this personality type doesn't want to hear you'd be doing anything better with anyone else. So I, famous last words, looked over my shoulder, turned around to my husband and went, well, babe, eat my snow. And um, down I went. And about 20 seconds later, I knew I was in serious trouble on my second somersault. That was not intentional. As my head's facing the sky, one ski went flying off and the other one didn't. And in mid-air, I literally heard the loudest pop, pop, pop that you've ever heard. And I snapped my ACL, I tore my MCL, tore my meniscus and fractured my knee. I did the whole day deal i'm lying there they had to get the ski patrol you know they put you in one of those little coffins and they take you down the mountain and everyone's like who's that nerd and you're like that's me and um anyway why do i tell you all that story that i am so-
0: I have no clue i mean because aren't you supposed to be well in a world where female pastrixes would exist um the job of the female pastrix in a christian church would be to preach the word um, not tell stories about her life, but I mean, apparently you've flown all the way across the Pacific Ocean, um, in, and you know, 20 hours on a on an airplane, um, in order to tell people a story about your life. Oh, this is just great! You know, you know, the fun thing about the internet is you could have just posted this on a website and saved the airline fee for the you know, poor church there. You know,
4: thing is, my mother, I come from a very staunch Greek. Uh, Greek Orthodox family, you know, Greeks are are fatalists. It does not matter how bad things are, they can always get worse. And so my mother, for years, would be like, Christina, don't do this, don't go skiing, you might have an accident, you know, be careful with the girls. And so when I flew home to Australia to have knee surgery, my mother said to me, Christina, I'm so glad you had that accident because I told you that if you went skiing, you would end up having an accident. That's Greek logic. But essentially, I come from a family that was quite risk averse. I I grew up in a nation that in fact never encouraged you to take great risks. Now, we're the land, as your pastor reminded me yesterday, of convicts and criminals, but we were very much encouraged, don't step out of the boat. Don't take any risks. Stay safe. In fact, in our society, these sayings were very common in my home, in our society, and I'll start, and if you know, you can finish. Things like, you can't have your cake and? If it's too good to be true. If it can go wrong. Everything that goes up. Look before you. Keep both feet on there. Don't count your chickens. So you all had a negative Greek mother as well, obviously what we were taught is stay safe stay predictable don't take any risks who do you think you are don't do anything out of the boat now that's okay if the world wants to live like that but when that kind of thinking begins to permeate the church of jesus christ it's extremely dangerous because there is nothing safe about being alive
0: Uh, okay so at this point you're trying to make an argument about christianity you're trying to teach us something about christianity by deducing things from your life story and from your experience Uh, both your skiing accident and the fact that you were raised by a risk-averse greek mother got it okay so apparently her experiences now rise to well we can draw deductions from that that apply to the christian life in general um, forget the fact that uh, Evil Knievel could not jump that canyon. Christine Kane can. Don't worry. She's skilled here.
4: Nothing safe about being alive. When we begin to equate the blessed life with the safe life, then there's something fundamentally wrong. God is an infinite God. He has created us as finite beings, and woven into the very fabric of our finiteness is this whole concept of risk.
0: Uh, so woven into the very fabric of our finiteness is risk. You got any Bible passages that say that? I mean, you know, thus saith the Lord: woven into thy fabric of thy flesh, is is the is risk. You know, some, something along those lines. Do you got any verses that say something even remotely approaching that? If not, you're not teaching biblical doctrine, there, lady. Not control.
4: When an earthquake's going to happen or when a tsunami's going to happen, you and I can't control what happens on the stock market. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, living, just being alive and going through our daily life is extremely risky. Nick and I fly, we um, are full-time missionaries out of our church, and we fly about 300,000 miles a year to do what we do across the earth. Now, so flying is a fundamental part of our life. Well, recently we were flying from um, Chicago to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, you know, the plane took off. It got up there above the clouds where you kind of want it to be. And so it was up there. And after about five minutes, the captain comes over the loudspeaker. He says, ladies and gentlemen, there is no need to panic. (laughs) Of which I'm thinking I wasn't panicking (laughs) until you just said that. And then literally he said, we're having problems with the landing gear. We can't get it up. We don't know what's still attached. We're not going to make it to Raleigh, so we're going to turn around and try to land in Chicago. Now, 35,000 feet, church, there's certain words you never want to hear in the same sentence. The word try and land are two of those words you don't want in the same sentence. So anyway, at that second, literally, the spirit of atheism left the airplane. And um, from the front to the back, (laughs) people were crying out. I mean, Muhammad, Allah, Buddha, Jesus, Mary, the donkey. I mean, they were going for it. It was awesome. (laughs) People were crying out, hoping there was something.
0: You know, I don't even think, as far as storytellers go, that you're really gifted in telling your own life stories. Um, I'm kind of bored with your life stories, ladies. You got anything from the Bible you can share with us? You know, maybe tell us about one of the people in the scriptures. I'm I'm hoping here. You know, I'm you because in the um, dream world where um, female pastrixes exist. I'm sure that their job would be to preach the word. So I'm kind of hoping that you can kind of stop talking about you, um, you know, because your delivery, I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's better than most. And, you know, yeah, there's some entertainment value here. But again, this is a church service and this is supposed to be a sermon. So we're supposed to be hearing about God and uh, what God's word teaches, you got anything about that that you can whip out of your story bag there, lady?
4: <laughs> People were crying out, hoping there was something, but you know what I realized that day, church. I realized that flying is very risky
0: yeah yeah I didn't know that until you said that. I had no idea there was any risk at all of flying i had i mean forget the fact that there's been you know pretty dramatic plane crashes and wreckage. That you know, I've seen news stories on you know, like my entire life, um, but you know, I I I was never able to put two and two together there, and never quite figured out. Oh, wait a second! There's risk to flying. <laughs> You've just completely turned my world upside down there, Christine.
4: In Veil, in February last year, a ski vacation. You know what I realized last February? That going on vacation is risky. You know, the last couple of years, Nick and I have been to several nations around the world where within hours of leaving and having um, evangelistic meetings or crusades, there have been major terrorist attacks. We were in Jakarta, Indonesia, the night that they bombed the Australian embassy and the building next door, a nine-story building next door, was bombed totally to the ground. That building was bombed at 1.38 a.m. Nick and I left that building at 11 p.m., two hours and 38 minutes before. We're at Jakarta Airport. And it's quite a disconcerting feeling to know that you were the last person that did a Christian meeting in a building and then that building's bombed to the ground two hours later. We run an anti-human trafficking initiative based in Eastern Europe in Thessaloniki in Greece. And, um, you know, by the time I got my girls on the aeroplane in Thessaloniki and we landed in Heathrow and we're watching the monitors at Heathrow Airport, with all of the riots happening in Greece and the petrol bombings, where we have our legal center, our shelter, our transition home. Major riots, major um, bomb attacks, right there in the center of the city. Right where we had been just just hours before. Do you know the thing that I'm discovering, church, is that being an evangelist in the 21st century is incredibly risky.
0: Um, (laughs) you got any proof that you're an evangelist? Um... (laughs) <laughs> that would um, uh, <laughs> that would mean that you're t- you know talk about the evangel or you know the good news Christ died for our sins. I'm not seeing any evidence here that you're an evangelist because that you know when I think of the evangelists I think of like you know Matthew Mark Luke John those four evangelists uh, you know th- when you read what they wrote all they ever did was talk about Jesus and all you ever do is talk about yourself. Are you trying to share the good news of you? Because I'm not hearing the good news of Jesus. Are, are you sure you're an evangelist? Safe about it.
4: You know, when I was nine years old, I I fell in love for the first time with a little Mauritian boy, boy in my third grade, and um, his name is Patrick. And you know, Patrick and I had never spoken, but for six months I used to look at him across the classroom, and my heart would beat. So eventually, one lunchtime, I went up to him and I went, Patrick, you love me, don't you? And he didn't know what to do, so he just kind of nodded his head. And um, and then I said to him, Patrick, will you go with me? And what that means in Australia, when you're nine years old in third grade and you're in love with a little boy and you ask him to go with you, what that means is you're not going anywhere with this person, but you are exclusively going nowhere with this one person. And um, so, Patrick,
0: don't you think it's a little young to be dating in third grade? You know, just, you know, crazy question I ask these kinds of things, you know.
4: And and, um, so Patrick and I went nowhere together for two whole weeks. And then Patrick dumped me. I know, it's sad to go nowhere with my best friend Kathy. But you know what my little nine-year-old heart discovered about love? That love is risky. You're catching on this morning.
0: I had no, this is totally turning my world upside down. No clue that love was risky.
4: Love, that love is risky. Are you catching on this morning? When I was 13, I came home and this was front page news in the newspapers in the state where I live in Australia because um, it became what later on a kidnapping charge. My aunt, my dad's sister came home to find that her house had been emptied of all of their belongings and her husband of 25 years had taken their five-year-old daughter, all their belongings and moved into state to another state in Australia and um, he'd moved with, in with her best friend with whom he'd been having an affair for 18 of the 25 years that they were married. And at 13 years old, Church, I discovered that marriage
0: is risky. I had no idea. I mean, mean, wow, this is just going to totally change my life. I feel life transformation happening even as I'm speaking to you on the radio. You can't
4: avoid risk if you try. When I was 19, I was working and my next-door neighbors came in to my office where I was to tell me that my father had died just about half an hour before in my mother's arms. We just worked minutes away from my home. I didn't really believe it. I jumped in the car, raced home, came to my front yard, saw an ambulance there, walked into the lounge room and saw my father lying. The first dead body I'd ever seen in my life was the body of my father. And although I could still kind of smell his aftershave, he felt so warm. I could still taste his sweat when I bent down to kiss. I could smell, taste, touch, see, but something was very evidently missing. And at 19 years old, I discovered in a very profound and permanent way that life is terminal and life is risky, that you cannot avoid risk if you try, can't avoid death if you try. In the words of George Bernard Shaw, he put it beautifully. He said, death is the ultimate statistic
0: just want to let you all know that George Bernard Shaw is not one of the biblical authors, just in case you were confused there.
4: Statistic. One out of one will die. I bet you feel so encouraged you came to church this morning. And so the point is... Are you sure this is church? Where am I going with all of this?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Anything from God, you know, from his word.
4: That some of us try to live such a safe life. Some of us try to control everything in life and we base our life around what we can acquire, how much we can accumulate, how much we can amass. And what we forget is that life is not permanent as we know it. You and I are
0: not a... Pro- yeah, whew, I'm glad you reminded me. I almost forgot that life wasn't permanent. I know I keep forgetting I'm mortal and then I'm going to die. I just, <laughs> silly me.
4: He has plucked us out of eternity. He has positioned us in time and he's given us gifts and talents for the purpose of serving our generation. Uh, oh, boy! In fact, we are not going to be here forever in the
0: book of James, the writer writes to us a- oh we finally finally get to a Bible verse James, okay, all right where where are we at in James all right and he says, Come
4: now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what you will what will happen tomorrow for what is your life? the scripture says. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. All of the stress, all of the anxiety, all of the worry, what's happening on the market, in the market this week. uh, Boy, you know,
0: okay. By the way, this is James chapter 4, verse 13, 14, okay? And, uh, you know, she just kind of wove those words into what she's preaching, well, about her own life. All right, let's see if we can add just a little bit to this here. Because, I, mean, I mean, she was preaching, um, well, giving us James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. I, I want to read a little bit more of it and maybe kind of take it into James chapter 5. Uh, so it, let's get the argument here, because the this section of the Epistle of James, this it, it, kind of like... Uh, each There's like encapsulated thoughts, and they're all tightly wound up. And so this is actually the beginning of a thought here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So come now, you rich, weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming upon you, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Mm, good stuff. Okay, so you got you kind of got the idea of what's going on here. Um, so was James's point that the world is risky? No, not really. Um, his point is is that man's life is short which i think is kind of the point that she's making but um the idea here is is that you know it you can almost argue that this is a passage that's making a firm case for the sovereignty of god okay stop trying to figure out you know well oh, i'm going to make plans to do this and plans to do that and make a profit doing this and profit doing that and instead Say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or so do that. Keep in mind that we, as Christians, God is King. Christ is our King. So you know what's missing in all of this equation is some you know this, what James is kind of getting at here. Uh, those who arrogantly live their lives and make their plans as if God has nothing to say in the matter. That's what's really going on here. All right, well, let's see where she goes with this. All of the
4: worry, what's happening on the market, in the market this week? How much am I going to expand my house? Is my kid going to get a 4.0? You know, who, all the stress that we have, the Bible says, vapor.
0: All of the st- uh, stress is not the point that James was making there.
4: Stuff that we worry about and we think is so important, vapor. Am I going to find that right one, vapor? Can I extend my house? Am I going to buy somewhere new and get big? Vapour. Oh, no, my little car's got a scratch on it. Vapour. I didn't quite, you know, am I really going to get into that college because it's going to make my whole life? Vapour. Here a vapour, there a vapour, everywhere a vapour, vapour. It's a very important vapour. It's a very important vapour. It lasts about that long. That's what time is. That's what time is, that long. All the stress, all the anxiety. God says, what are you going to do with the gifts that I've given you during that time? What are you going to do with the time that I've given you during that time? What are you going to do with the talents that I've given you during that time?
0: Hmm. Hmm. I detect a lightened version of the law being preached here.
4: As this world. I don't want you to base your life on just how much you can amass, how much you can accumulate, how much you can acquire because there's a lot more important things. And life is but a vapor. It's a very important vapor because the decisions that you make will impact not only your eternity but all the other people that are on the other side of your obedience, this side of eternity. For some reason, we've equated the blessed life with a safe life. You know, church, the purpose of life is not to arrive at death safely because that's how a lot of us live. As
0: what so am i supposed to like you know right at the end you know jump out of an airplane without a parachute so that i can arrive at the end of life unsafely what are you talking about
4: safely because that's how a lot of us live as long as i've got my nice little stuff and it's all really nice i've got my 2.2 and the mortgage and my white picket fence and now i'm going to fall into the coffin safely it's all safe i'm going in in one piece the truth is that most Christians spend their life praying for signs and wonders and miracles and then avoid the kind of life and avoid any context where a miracle can happen.
0: Um, really? Okay. You, you got any proof for that claim? I mean, that's quite an assertion. You got anything to back it up? Miracles.
4: And then avoid the kind of life and avoid any context where a miracle can happen. God's saying, I'm calling you out of the boat and this whole series of living. Uh,
0: God's calling me out. How did I get in a boat? Why is God calling me out of it? I mean, you you went from skiing to an airplane and now I'm in a boat and God's calling me out of it. Well, Well, where is the boat? What's the boat doing? Why would God want me out of the boat? Am I supposed to be on the shore? What am I? Where did this come from?
4: Being boldly. God's saying, are you living the kind of life where I even need to turn up?
0: Because um, really, um, that's what God's saying. Um, where'd you get this information from? Because uh, I, I don't see that God or at least that description of God or anything like that about God revealed in his word. Uh, did you just make it up? Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. You deduce this from your life stories. Okay.
4: Fine. Most of us are not even living the kind of life where we need God to show up in a major way. See, I believe that God's looking for his church. He wants to take us to places we've never been by paths we didn't even know existed.
0: Well, uh, that's fine and all that you believe that, but you got a single, you know, like biblical passage that says anything even remotely approaching this, Uh, because yeah, he, here's the deal. I'll argue from the Lord's Prayer that what you're selling here is, is well, just counterfeit Christianity. Uh, here's the deal. You're, God wants us to have to, he wants us to live a life where he has to show up in a big way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's do this. The uh, Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Seems pretty basic to me. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's the deal. It's talking there about, well, needing daily bread. Seems kind of basic, kind of ordinary. Nothing super risky going on there. Um, let's see here. Uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That kind of points to the fact that each and every one of us lives well uh, as individuals within our respective communities and vocations. For instance, I happen to be a dad. I have three children. I happen to be married. My wife uh, and I have been married happily for 20, wow, how many years now? 20. <laughs> sorry, <clears throat> sorry, just trying to do the math there. <laughs> it's like, really, it's that long? Okay, so uh, it's <laughs> 23 years. But uh, the, see, the point is this, is that I'm a, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a teacher in the church, okay? um, I, you know, and so, uh, and I do a, I run a radio station. So because God has put me into each and every one of these vocations, I can deduce from that, especially even from the fact that there's passages that say that God wants us to work quietly with our hands, make a living for ourselves, provide for ourselves, and set aside enough to also to take care of those who are in need. These are clear passages of scripture. So here's the deal: I don't know anything about any passages that say God expects me to live a risky life so that He has to, you know, uh, interact in a you know in a miraculous way i mean if anything it sounds like christine kane is preaching the same sermon that satan preached um to uh, jesus uh, about throwing himself off of the uh, off the temple mount uh and so that god's angels would have to rescue him and jesus said don't put the lord your god to the test but i can know i know this for a fact god wants me to be a good dad god wants me to be a good husband why because god's word says that it, you know, there, there's passages that say, husbands, love your wives. There's passages that say, fathers, don't exasperate your children. There's passages that say, you better get to work and provide for yourself. A lazy person shouldn't eat, the scriptures say. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that um, God, in his word, has all of these passages that tell me to do pretty bland and ordinary things By you know, in comparison to the risk factor. I mean, I don't need to go jumping out of airplanes. I don't need to be doing anything demanding any miracles. But see, here's the deal, is that, I mean, she did make the case that just ordinary life can be risky, right? Well, that being the case, I mean, there's been times just in my ordinary, non-risky life, I've needed God to, well, come through with a miracle. And uh, I wasn't even trying to live a risky life. I was trying to be a good dad, a good husband, a good employee, you know, things like that. So I, I don't even know where, she, where she's coming from because the, the, the two verses that she quoted don't actually say that, sh, that God wants us to live our lives in a risky manner so that he has to show up in a miraculous way. I, I don't know of any passage that says anything of the sort. In fact, I'm pretty sure she's just concocted this out of her head. And again, I point out the fact this sounds a lot. Like uh, Satan's temptation of uh, Jesus about throwing himself off of the uh, off of the pinnacle of the temple and having God's angels rescue him. I mean, talking about risky, you know.
4: Dr. David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, when he went there, the missionary society that sent him to Africa wrote him a letter and said, Dr. Livingston, is there a path paved to where you are? If there is, we have many men that we want to send to help you. He wrote back and he said, if you will have men that will only come if a path has been paved, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no path at all. And God's looking for a church that says, I'm willing to take a risk.
0: I'm not looking for safety. I'm not looking for predictability. Life. Is- yeah, you're speaking for God here again. Uh, where do, where are the, those verses that says God's looking for people who are willing to take a risk? Because um, you, you you're making it clear that this is what God wants. Uh, my question is, where is it written that God wants this? And you have to point it out to me in his written word.
4: Consumed about during that vapor. For God so loved the world, the scripture teaches us, that he said his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to die on a cross and rise again from the dead.
0: You know, this is true. And what does that have to do with risk-taking?
4: Not to make our lives safe. Safety is not the goal of Christianity.
0: Um. Okay, yeah, Jesus' death on the cross has nothing to do with safety and comfort, period. That's like the wrong category to operate. Jesus' death on the cross was to propitiate the wrath of God. In other words, to take the risk out of being sent to hell. Um. So, Um. yeah, so it's sitting and saying, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you can live a safe life. Well, that that's like a complete category fallacy. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I wouldn't eat spaghetti either. But eating spaghetti has nothing to do with Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I can ride my bicycle to uh, to the local civic center. Um, yeah, because riding a bicycle has nothing to do with Jesus' death on the cross. Safety in life has nothing to do with the cross. There's a reason why Jesus was on the cross. He was propitiating the wrath of God. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. You, you get what I'm saying? He was crucified for our sins, yet safety has nothing to do with it. Risk has nothing to do with it. I mean,
4: make our lives safe. Safety is not the goal of Christianity. Freedom is. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says it's for freedom that Christ set us free.
0: Yeah, that would be freedom from sin, death, and the devil.
4: And yet so many of us look for a safe life, and we end up living safe and caged and bound rather than free to step into the world that God has called us to step into.
0: Yeah, um, Christine, you're preaching delusions of grandeur. This isn't sound biblical doctrine at all. Who taught you this, by the way?
4: From the very world that God has called us to reach. And what we have to do is not fear the darkness of the world, but understand that the light of Christ lives on the inside of us. And God... What? What? God is sending us into a world. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost.
0: Yeah, by dying on the cross, and he's given us the job of proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, not to go out and preach the riskiness. I, I, there's no, there are no passages that say that we've got to go out and be risky or God's not happy.
4: We're not called just to make a career and make a living. No matter what occupation we have, no matter whether we're at school, we're a full-time homemaker, or we work in the corporate sector, first and foremost, we are followers of Christ that are called to bring light into dark places, not to avoid...
0: Uh, Jesus is the light, so if we're going to bring light into dark places, we bring Jesus. We preach Him.
4: Followers of Christ that are called to bring light into dark places... Not to avoid those dark places, but to be the light of Christ in there. In Matthew chapter 5, the scripture tells us that we are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. Why?
0: Yeah, understand this. Um, When it talks about us being the light of the world here, um, we have to shine the light of the gospel got it okay and so our good works shine in the darkness and our good works are loving god and loving neighbor and they point people to christ not us christ god
4: says i need my church to be light in the midst of darkness not to run away from the darkness and to create an artificial subculture and avoid the world that i've called you to reach But I've asked you to step into the world and not be of it. Don't have the same value system as the world. Don't have the same priorities of the world. Don't have the same pursuits as the world, but be in it. And bring light in the midst of darkness, because we have a world that is dying.
0: Yeah, could you talk about Jesus? You know, because he's the light of the world, right? But she's really good at preaching about herself. And uh, not so good on the preaching about Jesus part. Like, really kind of miserable about it. I mean... God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son because he doesn't want us to be uh to live in comfort he doesn't want it's not about safety it's like you're totally missing the whole point of the cross. are Are you familiar with the concept of the uh penal substitutionary atonement, the vicarious death of Christ on the cross for our sins? Are you familiar with this concept? That's the good news that we're supposed to preach That's the light that shines in the darkness
4: darkness because we have a world that he's dying. We have a world that is desperate for the church to step out of its safety zone. You know, we were in Africa and um, we we're at a, a game park. It was amazing. We saw all these lions and tigers and, and they were wild and untamed and undomesticated. They were beautiful in the game park. And then we came home to Sydney and took our kids to the zoo. And I saw the same lions and the same tigers in a cage. And they were docile and they were domesticated and they were tamed. And I looked at my husband and I said, you know, this is exactly what the church is like. I said, we get saved and then we get caged by religiosity. We get caged by tradition and culture. And we lose our whole personality and we get tame and we get domesticated. And we think the goal of our Christianity is just that I'm nice. Just that she's sweet and she's nice. As if Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, died on a cross and rose again from the dead to make me nice, gag me
0: with a spoon. He didn't come. What exactly was he hanging on the cross for, anyway? Um, yeah. So now it's, uh, it's yeah. Again, it like I said. Okay, listen. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I can eat lasagna either. I do love lasagna. Gotta tell you, a good lasagna. <laughs> yeah, and you know, just add into the mix a really good um, cab with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So sorry. So but here's the deal. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I can eat lasagna and drink cabernet. yeah. yeah. So there. So you better not drink Cabernet or eat lasagna either. It sounds like an argument, but it's not. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you can be nice. Well, can you explain to me from the scriptures why Jesus died on the cross then? Because it has nothing to do with niceness or safety, has nothing to do with comfort or non-comfort. It has nothing to do with lasagna, Cabernet, spaghetti, or riding a bike. Jesus died on the cross to propitiate the wrath of God because we're sinners. He died to satisfy God's justice. He was punished for our sins in our place. That's the category of the cross. You keep talking. I mean, you you mention the cross and then you bring all this other stuff and it has nothing to do with the cross. This isn't a biblical argument. Gag me with a spoon. He didn't come. To- right. Gag me with a spoon, too to the kingdom of darkness so that we can make a difference in our generation, church. Yeah, I'm sorry, but where in the Bible does it say Jesus died on the cross so that we can make a difference? Hitler made a difference.
4: He came to make us more than nice.
0: Yeah, that's great. What did he do on the cross then? Could you please explain it?
4: Tame and domesticated. You see those Christians, you know, before I was saved, man, I was the life of the party. I was wild. I was awesome. But now I'm a Christian. I'm a socially dysfunctional moron. I've had a lobotomy. I have no personality. I wear beige. I don't do anything. I don't go anywhere. I don't say anything. And I can only define my Christianity by what I no longer do. I used to be the life of the party. But now I don't do this and I don't do that. And I I haven't got a clue what I should be doing, but I know what I don't do. (laughs) I'm like, Jesus is waiting for his church to arise.
0: Okay, so I you know let me uh, <clears throat> let me give the subtitle here. So this is the out of the frying pan into the fire sermon. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's only one way this woman would be making any sense to any group of people who calls themselves Christians, and that is is that they are not being taught the scriptures, so they have no clue what it is that Christians do or believe. As a result of it, you know, they're wide open to a she wolf. Yeah, and this one hasn't been tamed either. She's a risky she-wolf, isn't she?
4: I'm like, Jesus is waiting for his church to arise. We have a world full of global injustice and poverty and pain.
0: All of that caused by sin. We're supposed to preach the gospel, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins.
4: A world that is desperate for the church to understand that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world.
0: Yeah, that's great. And yeah, so we need to go out and preach the good news of what Christ has done for us on the cross and not hook it into anything that has to do with being nice, eating spaghetti, eating lasagna, or being safe or not safe.
4: God hasn't called me during my vapor to hide from the world, but to understand that greater is the Jesus on the inside of me than any darkness on the outside of me. I don't-
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, nervous about that Jesus inside of you. I'm not convinced it's the real Jesus. Yeah, that Jesus inside of you, hmm. Yeah, it doesn't smell like the real Jesus to me. Different aftershave.
4: Like Jesus who left the comfort of heaven and the safety of heaven and stepped into a broken and a lost humanity. That's what the incarnation is. It's putting flesh and blood on the bones of faith.
0: He's I uh, what? The Incarnation is putting flesh and bones on faith? That's heresy. (laughs) Yeah, no, the Incarnation is God taking a body uh, uh, upon himself. It's Dios con carne, God with meat. Uh, That's what the Incarnation is. Incarnate, yeah, God in human flesh. It's not faith in human flesh. Now we're talking weird stuff here, yeah. there's more proof you should never let a woman be your pastor.
4: Stepped into a lost and a broken world, and he took the hand of broken people and took the hand of the father, and reconciled them through his cross. And he calls you and I to do the same thing, not to run from the world and create a little safe. World.
0: Really, he calls us to incarnate. This is just unbelievable. I mean, I. I'm beginning to lose count. The uh, the heresy per second count is like dizzying. Through his cross.
4: And he calls you and I to do the same thing, not to run from the world and create a little safe world, but to go in in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be witnesses, not to do witnessing, but to be
0: witnesses. Mm-hmm. Do you know what uh, how the word martyr, which is the Greek word for witness, do you know how that came to be used? Right, yeah.
4: Look in the book of Luke, chapter fifteen. You see one chapter, three parables about one subject. You won't see that anywhere else in the Bible. God's obsessed with the lost. He sent Jesus for the lost.
0: I completely agree with you there.
4: Bible, God's obsessed with the lost. He sent Jesus for the lost, and we, His church ought to have the same heartbeat for what his heart beats for.
0: Yeah, I want to hear his heartbeat. Okay, (laughs) getting nervous. (laughs) Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm. Never mind.
4: And his heart beats for a lost and a broken world. He talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost son. He's teaching us, don't judge the lost. Don't condemn the lost. Don't point a finger at the lost, but love the lost. And let me explain to you why people end up lost. And it doesn't matter why they end up lost. Our job is to seek and save the lost.
0: Uh, No, that's Jesus' job. Um, Okay. (laughs) How did people get lost? I'm curious. Um, What's what's your explanation? How do you read the biblical text?
4: Through a paddock and there's a whole lot of sheep and then there's this one little sheep all by itself at the end of the day. The sheep didn't set out in the morning and go, gee, I want to get lost today. It was just preoccupied with eating the grass preoccupied stuck its head up at the end of
0: the day went bah that completely innocent sheep i mean just th- so apparently we can deduce from this that man isn't dead in trespasses and sins just a little preoccupied with eating grass
4: with eating the grass preoccupied stuck its head up at the end of the day went bah that being interpreted means i'm lost and so he was just lost we've got a world that's preoccupied they're trying to pay the bills trying to keep their kids off drugs trying not to lose their house Just preoccupied. Not bad people, just preoccupied people.
0: (laughs) And you're a Pelagian to boot. Who would have thunk? Yeah, it's not that the lost people are bad people, they're just preoccupied. Well, what was Jesus hanging dead on the cross again for? For a bunch of preoccupied people. They're not bad. He wasn't really for their transgressions, because if they had transgressions, that would mean that they're bad. Yeah, forget the fact that you know Ephesians chapter two says that we're all dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah, you know, evil, bad, wretched people. No, no, no. They're just preoccupied. <laughs> Yeah, uh uh-huh. No wonder you're the solution to their problem, because all you've got to do is get them to be, you know, to to get their attention so they're not so preoccupied on what they're doing so that they can pay attention to you and your stories about yourself. And you can tell them about the Jesus inside of you rather than the Jesus outside of them that really did die and rose again and ascended into heaven. You know, that Jesus, unbelievable.
4: Darkness, and seek and save that which is lost. The coin, the coin didn't get lost on its own. The woman was careless with the coin, and it ended up lost.
0: Yeah. What, know, we, what are you going to do with the son, the prodigal son?
4: We have a generation with whom many.
0: You are going to get to him, right? Because is the reason why the prodigal son was prodigal is just because, you know, he was one day walking through town and... Wasn't paying attention because he was preoccupied chewing on some lost coin and some grass. And next thing you know, he found himself in a faraway country and feeding pigs and living wildly, of all things. Weird, you know. Yeah, I, I, What are you going to do with him? You know, we have a generation
4: with whom many who have put over authority, influence makers, decision makers over their lives, have mismanaged and have not been good stewards of what they should be teaching the next generation. And we have a generation that is lost morally, emotionally, spiritually.
0: But they're not bad. No. They may be uh, immoral, but they're not bad. They're just preoccupied.
4: You know, I come from a background where people were careless with my life.
0: And, and now we're telling a story about you. It's weird. You mentioned the three stories. Um, But you kind of left one out. Weird that you'd leave that one out, don't you think? Because, you know, that one would be the story that ends up, like, completely overturning this idea that people aren't bad. They're just, you know, preoccupied, you know. So let's open up our Bibles and take a look at that story because I think that that one will prove you wrong. Um, Okay, so if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 15 verse 11, the parable that is often referred to as the prodigal son. It's 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 way better than that. But anyway, okay, so there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, let me translate that for you. This is an honor culture. Okay, you, this is a son who wants his father dead, and wants him out of his life. Wants his inheritance now. So you can you can literally translate this as "Dad, drop dead." It's irking me that you're not dead yet. I want I want the inheritance. I want you gone. And what does the father do? Okay, so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. Why did he take a journey to a far country? Because in an honor culture like this, what this son did to his father is unheard of. The entire town would be tempted to string this boy up by a a local tree or to throw him into a pit and stone him to death. Because that's what he deserves for this kind of behavior. How dare you ask for your father to drop dead? Unbelievable, right? That's what's going on here. So he took a journey to a far country. Now he's hanging out with foreigners, non-Israelites. This is a story told to Jews. Okay, He's hanging out with the Goyim, the Gentiles. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now it doesn't say that he squandered it on prostitutes. It just says that he squandered it on reckless living. He squandered the money. It's all gone. The whole scenario here is wicked and evil. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Why is he in need? Well, reckless living, he squandered all his money, and now there's a famine. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. It doesn't get any worse than that for a Jew. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. He still wants to cut a deal with his dad. He still wants to kind of get himself out of his own scrape. So then he arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Watch this. son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him. The confession's out. He's confessed that he's sinned. He's repented. And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and his shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and have a party.
3: What kind of father is that?
0: This son of his wanted him dead. This son of his squandered everything that he had that was given to him by his father. This son deserves wrath. And here he's confessed that he deserves that. That he's sinned. Not that he was preoccupied, not that he was just minding his own business and got lost, but that he sinned against heaven. That's you can translate that as God. He sinned against God and he sinned against his father. He's confessed it. And the Father not only forgives, but throws a party. Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. He's going to be his son again, not a servant. No deals being cut here. Ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's party. For this, my son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I could tell more of the parable, but I've told enough of the story to ye get what's going on here. To seek and save the lost is to seek and save sinners because Jesus died for sinners. And we preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And this story, this story, this parable that Jesus told informs us about what that repentance and forgiveness of sins looks like. What it looks like on the part of us, who want God dead, who've sinned against heaven and earth, who've sinned against our Heavenly Father and each other, and what it looks like when our God forgives, He celebrates. He is a gracious, loving Father who forgives us of our sins for the sake of Christ and what Christ did for us on the cross. So I I put that in here just to kind of point out the fact that, well, Christine Kane is right. God seeks and saves the lost. That's who he's really after. Uh, But she describes the lost in such a lame way that apparently we need to save people from just being preoccupied.
4: People were careless with my life. I ended up lost not because necessarily I was bad. Of course, I was born into sin. But the fact is that...
0: Well, of course, yeah, I was born into sin, but I wasn't necessarily bad. Yeah, when you say that you weren't necessarily bad, but you were born into sin, you're denying that you were born into sin. That's double speak.
4: People were careless with my life, so I ended up lost. I came from a background. I was born, you know, Sydney, Australia, second-generation migrant Greek. When Before my big fat Greek wedding, when it was not cool to be Greek in Australia, I was very marginalized because of my ethnicity. In a culture that demeaned women... Never ever taught that a woman could aspire to be anything other than just kind of a lean, mean breeding machine, really. I grew up in the poorest local government area in my state in government-assisted housing. And pretty much every week of my life, from the time I was three years old until the time I was 15, I, was, I had been abused by four men every week. And what that does with someone is it really messes with your whole sense of identity, your whole sense of purpose. I was a young woman full of shame. I was full of guilt. I was full of condemnation. I was full of bitterness. I was full of unforgiveness. I was full of so much hurt. I was lost. And people could have looked at my behavior and pointed a finger and been judgmental, but they didn't know what had happened in my life. And that's how I ended up lost. I didn't need to be...
0: No, you were born lost. You you said you were born into sin. Everything that happened to you is a result of a sinful and fallen world. And here you're painting yourself out to be a victim. And yes, you were a victim, but you are also a perp. You You're not telling the story right. If you only tell it, oh, I was victimized by other people who were sinning against me. Yeah, no. The rest of the story is is that you didn't love God with all of your heart. And you truly didn't love your neighbor as yourself. And you've even confessed here that you were unforgiving. So, yeah, there's a lot of your sin that we could be discussing here. But you're discounting your sin. And you're discounting the fact that you were born into sin in such a way that you were a distracted victim, apparently, and you were lost. That's how you became lost. No, you were born dead in trespasses and sins. That's how you were lost. And you were born in a world with a whole bunch of other sinners who were born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. And what those people do by their nature, by their very corrupted human nature, is they sin against each other and they sin against God. And what happened is you were sinned against, and you also sinned. But that's not the story we're hearing here.